0: Our scripture reading today is Acts 12, 1 to 24. Please read along with me in your Bibles. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Pharaoh and all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, Holy Trinity, Chicago, downtown congregation, good to be with you this morning. I'm John Dennis, one of the pastors here, and uh, just want to say how excited I am and thankful for the work of those who have been finding a location for us, excited that we're going to be able to gather together on Easter Sunday, and then for the Sundays following that. It's a small start, but We look forward to seeing how God will unfold that. I want to bring your attention today to this 12th chapter in the book of Acts and the story of Herod and Peter and Rhoda and others. Amy and I have lived in this old house for 23 years. And as an old house, it has many creeks and flaws as as a home it has been a gift to our family throughout all these years a place to gather with those from the neighborhood a place to prepare to go out into the world tying up soccer cleats on saturday mornings to go and play soccer in the neighborhood But it's been more than a house, it's been a home. And we're thankful for it, although I have to say I have had a kind of love-hate relationship with it because as an old home built in 1888, it has needed more love and care and attention than I as a pastor have had the time or skill or money to give it. With its rattly windows, we feel the breeze of winter winds coming through. There are projects that have been waiting to be done for many years. In fact, we've had an opening in our ceiling for 23 years, an electrical box that was installed when we first moved in that was simply waiting for a light light fixture to be installed. And perhaps because it was number 180, 87 on our list of things to do, it has remained uninstalled. And yet, yesterday was a great day of celebration, because although we've had light in this space for years with lamps, we had never had the light coming from above. So for 23 years, I've walked into this attic and kicked myself that we had not yet completed that one project. I knew where the power might come from, but I hadn't accessed it. It had taken me all of those days and years to access this power. And it's a simple and homely analogy, but as we draw our attention to the text today, I want to make a very simple point and proposition, which is that it pays To know the source of power, particularly in suffering. Why? That is what this text is all about, that in the midst of the powers of the universe, sometimes as crushing as they are, there is another source of power to be accessed. And we tend to associate power with the rich or those who have climbed to places where they can exercise their strength, the famous, the political, the athletic. And Luke in this text is saying, no, no, no. There is a hidden power source, an underused source of power in our world today, like two wires being woven together. They are prayer and the ministry of the word. And Luke is showing us that when those two sources of power come together and are woven together, they have great effect in our world today. And the title for my sermon is very simple. It is just the power source. My argument is this, that it pays, friends, it pays to prioritize the power source of this world because God's power will outlast empires and can break the chains that bind us. And so I'm going to ask you just to bow with me as we open this text together and pray. Our Father in heaven, there are some here who have chains that need to be broken. There are some here who feel trapped and imprisoned, who need to be set free. Some who are in A state of suffering, there are some who need confidence in the midst of the swirling secularism of this world. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word today in the name of Christ. Amen. My aim this morning is to help to bring some peace and comfort to our souls in the midst of this swirling secularism by looking at the text and its relationship to this power source concept. In particular, I just want to give you four observations or principles for our moments of confusion and suffering that we are in. If you look at verses one to five, and do keep a Bible open, please, as we will be working through a close reading of the text, verses one to five really speak of the weakness of the church in the midst of the swirling power of the world. And it's important that we recognize in this hour that we are in, in the world globally, the weakness of the church in the face of the secular powers of the world. King Herod in this passage, in one sense, represents every evil empire. Every Lenin and Trotsky. Every wicked regime that has ever had an iron grip on this earth. There's actually four Herods, to do a little history lesson from the Bible, four Herods that are mentioned in the scriptures. The first one is Herod the Great, who's the one who tried to kill Jesus and kill all the other infants in Matthew 2, 16. And then he had a son whose name was Herod Antipas, who actually did kill John the Baptist, beheaded him because of the things that he was saying about his Sexual relationships and marriage, this is a family that you do not want to be on the other side of. This is like the Corleone family in The Godfather or The Sopranos, but even worse, the electrician that came to install my lights was reflecting on what it was like to grow up as an Irishman in the city of Chicago and telling stories of his father and grandfather and how different ethnic groups the Italians and the Irish at various times tried to blow up one another's cars <laughs> trying to take each other out this is a violent family the one we have here is called Herod the Herod Agrippa or Agrippa the first and he's like a first century al capone listen to the description in verse 1 about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. It doesn't just say that he laid hands on them. It's a description of the kinds of hands that are laid upon the church, which are violent hands. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, this should cut right to our hearts for those of us who have paid attention to the scriptures, for this is one of the disciples. This is the first Stephen had been killed before, yes, in Acts chapter 7, but this is one of the 12 that had followed Jesus from the beginning. This is one whose name was the son of Zebedee, or Jesus had given them a name, and these two must have been pretty impressive in their physical uh, demeanor. Because Jesus gave them the nickname, Sons of Thunder. And they're the two that had said to Jesus, hey, can we sit on your left and right hand when you get to heaven? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. These are bold leaders. And yet, Herod's sword can take down a son of thunder. So James becomes the first of the 12 to be Martyr. This is the weakness of God's people. Herod can yield and wield the sword and not be stopped. And the way that it pleased the religious community that day made him even more bold. Verse 3 says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So, James and John, and then Peter. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. These are men that were, were guarding him for four periods of the day, some a quarter of the day at night, through the night, and then through the morning, and then throughout the day. So Peter was put in prison, it says, verse five, but earnest prayer for him was being made by God to the church. Friends, simple truth here is that the church must never overcalculate its earthly strength. The state throughout history Though Christianity has grown and flourished, the state has always had the power to crush Christianity. In Holy Trinity's values, this is called the irony of weakness because though the church is weak, the church has its own secret weapons, has its own power source. Yes, Herod has the sword, but Christianity, those who follow Jesus have the sword of the spirit by which we wage our war. So prison, yes, but also prayer, earnest prayer. Luke is reminding the church through the story of the first century followers of Jesus, what the power source of the church is in the midst of conflict in order to prepare us for what is to come. Do you remember back in chapter six in the book of Acts when there was a conflict in the church And it came because of some racial prejudice where the Hebrew widows were being fed, but the Hellenist or Greek-speaking widows were not being fed. And the apostles spoke up at that moment and they said that they wanted to appoint leaders, seven leaders of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And then this key phrase, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables and then, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Those two wires, so to speak, are the power source of the local church. Ministry comes down to being as simple as that. Prayer and the ministry of the word and what What Luke is doing in this little section here is saying that this crucified movement of this crucified Savior begins with just 12 leaders is spreading now. Luke is saying this is how the kingdom spreads, through prayer and word. Friends, don't misjudge the outward power of this world as more powerful than it is. You have a connection. I know that some of you in this context have felt arid and dry. There's a uh, wonderful statement by a woman named Evelyn Underhill concerning the inner life and some of her writings on prayer. She says, I want to say something about a factor which has always developed in a life of prayer. The the liability to spiritual dryness and blankness. Blankness, painful to fervent Christians, but especially distressing to those whose business it is to work with souls. And what she's saying, actually, is that uh, this is a mark even of mature Christians. She says, I think it is above all the work that is done in times of aridity and desolation that the devotional life of the Christian worker shows its worth. I know that some of you feel the dryness, but that does not mean that God is not with you. You have a connection to God. This is the weakness of the Christian church, verses one to five. And now we see the beautiful power, exceptional though it may be in this situation, the incredible power of the strength of God's church. And this is humorous. Look at the passage with me. Verse 6 says, Now Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, and Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Luke wants you to know in the narrative that, man, Peter is secure. He's not going anywhere. Two soldiers, two chains, not one chain. Centuries at the door, there is a series of restrictions that are Locking Peter up, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side. What's beautiful about that word that Peter is struck there? It's the same word that Herod is is used to say that Herod was struck later, but here it is with releasing power. Here it is a constructive striking. There it is a striking of judgment and this striking comes from the angel who woke him and said get up quickly can you imagine this there's peter the lights are out he's stuck he's then struck and then he's woken and then these most famous words look at what the text says and the chains fell off his hands let me say it again and the chains fell off of his hands why does luke tell you this Tell me this, because you cannot chain the power of God. Because God is more powerful than Herod. God is more powerful than jail. He's more powerful than the chains that hold us. Charles Wesley famously wrote those words, My chains fell off. And he wrote that song that we will sing to close our service, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. He wrote it just a couple of days after he himself was saved. This is in May 21st, 1738. He was resting in the home of a man whose name is John Bray. John Bray was a poor man. He was a mechanic, a guy who worked with his hands. And Wesley, as he's resting in this man's home, hears this voice saying, in the name of Jesus. He hears this voice, arise and believe and thou shalt be healed of thy affirmities. Some of the people that write about this say that this was the sister of Mr. Bray in whose home he was staying, speaking because she felt commanded to say those words in a dream. In any case, Charles Wesley gets out of bed. He opens his Bible. He starts reading from the Psalms and he reads these words, you have put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. And then he read Isaiah 40, comfort ye, Comfort ye my people, saith our God. And he writes in his journal. Timothy Dudley Smith tells us, I have found peace, I have found myself at peace with God and rejoice in the hope of the love of Christ. And from that moment comes this incredible song that says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood Died he for me, who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. This is the gospel, friends. He comes into the world. He bled for Adam's. Helpless race, tis mercy all immense and free. And then this most famous verse, long my imprisoned spirit lay, picking up the imagery of this very passage, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray and I woke in the dungeon. He's speaking of his spiritual (sighs) incapacity, is being bound by his sin. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. And then listen to these words. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, this is showing the power of God who is the power source to set a soul free. How? as As Charles Wesley points out, through an interest in the Savior's blood who died for me. The power source here emanates from the crucified, the dead, the resurrected one, Jesus. The power is not merely some anonymous power source in the world. It is the Christocentric power of Jesus flowing into the world through this angel. God breaks Peter out of prison. God sets Charles Wesley's soul free. Look at verse eight. It says, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around yourself and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know at that time, at that moment, that what was happening, was being done by an angel, was actually real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And they came to an iron gate leading into the city, and it opened of its own accord, and they went out and along a street, and immediately the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself, verse 11, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting Friends, what Luke is telling us is this is God's power source, is prayer even while Peter is in prison. Prayer even while Peter is bound. It, if this is not your experience, it doesn't mean that there is no power source, nor does it mean that you cannot know this power source. Luke wants you to know it. It pays, friends, to prioritize the ministry of prayer and the word, because it will last outlast empire's and can set the prisoner free. Kent Hughes puts it this way, that the power of fervent, even doubting prayer is greater than the power of kings. So you have the weakness of the Christian church, verses 1 to 5, the strength of the church in verses 6 through 11, and then you get the story of the Christian church in verses 12 to 19. The story must be told. So what happens then is Peter realizes, whoa, this was actually an angel. He goes to One of the other followers of Jesus' house, John Mark, and his mother Mary, they're praying there. He comes to the door. knocks on the door, and somebody we hadn't met before named Rhoda comes to answer. And Peter's like, Rhoda, it's me, (laughs) the guy that you've been praying for. And I love there's a little bit of quiet humor here. She takes a look at him, realizes it's him, is so overjoyed that she leaves the Apostle Peter standing at the door. That that slightly embarrassing time when she left him, the Apostle, standing there. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing there. And then the rest of the people who are praying, they're like, no, you're crazy, Rhoda, this is not true. You just want this to, to happen. This is wish fulfillment. Peter just keeps on knocking, and then he gets to tell his story. They say to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. They kept saying, no, it's his guardian angel. Peter continues knocking. When they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. He motions to them with his hand and silences them. And he describes how the Lord brought him out of prison. He gets to tell the story and then the story goes beyond that. Tell all these things to James and to the brothers. And then to verse 19, we, we continue on. When I was much younger, one of the first stories that I really began to love about the Christian gospel and its power was called The Cross and the Switchblade, many, many years ago, uh, written about a Pennsylvania pastor, a young preacher from the hills of Pennsylvania named David Wilkerson, who comes to New York City and begins to try to influence troubled teenagers towards prayer in the ministry of the word, really. He, he once said this, I knew, know from my work in the church how important a role tears play in making the man whole or a person whole. He's speaking of prayer here. He tells of how surprised he was In his book, The Cross and the Switchblade, when two leaders from one of the most feared fighting gangs in New York City responded to Jesus, he describes how they fell on their knees before him in repentance and that their partners, which were called warlords, followed their lead and took off their hats and held them at their hearts and flipped away their cigarettes and bowed on their knees it was so powerful to him such an answer to the prayer that he couldn't believe it in fact he thought these guys were began to doubt and worry that these guys had made fun of him and he goes home to his wife named Gwen and shares these sentiments and she looks at him and says David Wilkerson (laughs) Don't you realize that you got exactly what you wanted? You asked the Holy Spirit for a miracle, and now that you've got one, you're trying to argue it away. People who don't believe in miracles shouldn't pray for them. But isn't that our pattern, that we tend not to ask God in prayer? I do understand how conforming our culture can be in this area Paul Miller writes in his book on prayer called The Praying Life how some of our disbelief is actually absorbed from the culture around us. He says this, he says that the enlightenment mindset marginalizes prayer because it doesn't permit God to connect with us in this world. That is the the construct of the enlightenment mindset. He says that you're allowed a local deity as long as you keep him out of your science notes and don't take him seriously. He quotes Charles Malik. He says, nothing can be further from and more foreign to the whole temper of modern man than the anguished cry of David, where David says, from the ends of the earth, I will cry to him. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And Charles Malik rightly points out that modern man recognizes no such rock and that it's the source of all estrangement and tragedy. We feel this weakness, and so we need to go back to these stories of how God has worked in the world. Edith Schaefer has a great book called The Life of Prayer, and in it she speaks of how our understanding of prayer has been corrupted by our present age. She says, so much that is taught about prayer is wrong. She says, so many promises are given that God didn't give. And this is very important to us as we think about how we pray in our world today. So much is taken out of context. And she says, the result is people become bitter and angry at God, depressed and shattered and turn away from God when they need him most. Lord teach us to pray. She says that you hear these words like if you have enough faith then you'll be healed or if only you know ha- you had enough pray- faith then your child would be well. You would get up out of the wheelchair and walk. And what she's saying is that this teaching that promises kind of a perfect healthy life is actually a distortion of true Christianity. Because every part of the world makes it clear that we live in an abnormal world since the fall. Listen to this now. She says, The very heart of prayer is the suffering of Christ. And What she's saying is that prayer is a tool that brings us close to the heart of the suffering one, which is Christ. Peter and the church are crying out because he is imprisoned. In other words, the church is called to a kind of suffering and prayer, and the two go together. Let me tell you, take you now to this last point, which is really the victory of the church of God. And Luke very uh, poignantly shows us the contrast between God's power and the powers of the world. So let's look now finally at the victory of God's people. This is verses 20 to 24, and we will close with this. Verse 19 has said that uh, Herod had gone down from Judea to, to Caesarea, which is the seat of government. He spent time there. And the text tells us that the relationship between Herod and two of the cities on the Phoenician seaboard had become rocky. He was angry with them, and they were dependent upon him for food. So there is a point of tension here. Verse 20, he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded blast as the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because the country depended on the king's country for food. There was a dependent relationship here. And so Herod Agrippa stands up to give a speech, verse 21, and he puts on these royal robes and he takes a seat on the throne and he delivers an oration to them and the people are shouting, verse 22, the voice of God and not of man. The voice of God and not of man. And in a single moment in the text, you see God's jealousy for his own glory. Verse 23 says, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Same word as the angel striking Peter to free him. Here he is struck to his death. And the reason is given in the text because he did not give God the glory. And I'll just say it, Holy Trinity, for each of us, the theme of our lives, the aim of the church, Holy Trinity Chicago, is to give God the glory. And this comes in part by going through suffering in prayer. He did not give God the glory. That is, he he accounted his accomplishments as if they were his own accomplishments. They are speaking of him as if he is a God. And then it says, and he was eaten by worms and he breathed. Is last. Isn't that stunning? He goes in just a very short section at the beginning of chapter 12. He goes from power to use the sword to being worm food just 23 verses later. This is one of the texts that we have recorded also in a parallel account by a historian. Josephus, who was a first century historian, he tells the same account of Agrippa entering the theater on the break of day and the silver shining, glittering wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell. And then Josephus tells us that he goes to flatter, that his listeners are flattering him, saying, be gracious to us. Here's the quote, very similar how Luke puts it. He says, hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, the people are saying, but henceforth, henceforth we confess you to be a mortal creature. And eerily, Josephus records that Herod sees an owl sitting on a rope, and when he sees it is when he is struck, and he feels severe pain in his bowels, and he dies. Now, there's different ways that people take what it means that he is eaten by worms. Some believe that it means that he has this infection that's coming in his uh, abdomen at the time. But others believe that it, it means that when he is buried, he is eaten by worms there. Either way, what's being shown is a contrast between the outward power of Herod and the significantly more powerful hand of God. Herod comes with violent hands, And God strikes down those violent hands. This is the victory of the Christian church. Friends, that it will outlast empires. It will outlast wicked rulers. It will outlast all of the great empires of this world. You know that this is the point that Luke is making because in verse 24, the way he concludes is this, after, after saying that Herod is struck down because he does not give God glory and he's eaten by worms and breathed his last, listen to this beautiful verse, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. You see, what Luke is telling us is that this word and prayer will outlast the empires. What a contrast. Herod falls, and yet God's word continues to multiply. This is the theme that Luke is pulling throughout, chap- throughout the book. Acts chapter six, verse seven says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. And chapter 9, verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. What is the lesson? Friends, let us devote ourselves to that which is essential to the power source of God, to prayer and to ministry of the word. Some of us have benefited, some of you have benefited very much by John Mark Comer's writings, uh, a Portland pastor who has written um, on the ruthless elimination of hurry, and he talks about the importance of continuing in this world of distraction to develop the inner life and to cultivate our attention He says, attention leads to awareness. All contemplatives agree. The mystic points out that what's missing is awareness. Meaning that in the chronic problem of human beings' felt experience of distance from God, God God usually isn't the culprit. There's no place that God is not. Our awareness of God is the problem, and it's acute. So many people, he writes, live without a sense of God's presence through the day, and we talk about his absence as if it's this great question of theodicy, of injustice in the world, and I get that. I've been through the dark night of the soul. John Mark Comer writes, but could it be, with a few set exceptions, that we're the ones who are absent, not God? That we're the ones who are sucked into our phones or our TV or our to-do lists, oblivious to the God who is around us or with us or even in us, even more desirous than we are for a relationship. And he goes on, then he says, <laughs> he takes a knock again at technology and he says, this is why I harp at technology at the risk of sounding like an overzealous cult leader with spittle on his beard, don't you love the description, or a fundy Luddite with an axe to grind, I fear for the future of the church. There's more at stake here than our attention spans because what you give your attention to is the person that you become. I don't think I could have said it any better than he says it there, that we must give our, our our attention to prayer, in the ministry of the word in this age of distraction. Let's not forget Holy Trinity, our source of power. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. And may we, Holy Trinity, prioritize the power source of this world, which will outlive The empires and can spring open jail cells and break away our bonds. Holy Trinity, may we give glory to God. Our Father in heaven, in the swirling secularity of this world, help us to remember that your power will outlast all other powers. Help us to stand firm in the midst of this season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.